I'm launching a new series today, a two-week series. It's about marriage. It's called uh, This Is Us. And some of you are familiar with the, the TV show, This Is Us. Yeah, I want you to know that I watch every episode. I do, I do. And my daughter told me, Dad, don't watch it unless you have Kleenexes. And I want you to know that I'm, I man up when I watch This Is Us. I do not need Kleenexes. I just blow the snot right on my sleeve. I just... <laughs> We, we get through the whole thing. It, it's just, it's awesome. Hey, and by the way, uh, in this two-part series about marriage, uh, many of you here today are not married. You're single, divorced, widowed, widowered. We, we understand that. And you're going to discover that like 99% of what we're talking about in these two weeks uh, is applicable to the most important relationships in your life. So I'll be talking about marriage. You make, you make the right relationship. I, I need to start out by making a confession. Um, I am in a new relationship right now. I had one for 15 years, and it, it kind of got stale. We drifted apart. I wasn't feeling the spark anymore and uh, kind of lost the love. And uh, I finally just left and started a new relationship. The stale relationship was L.A. Fitness. Yeah. <laughs> 15 years. Some of you have noticed that my, um, my physique has changed a little bit as that relationship uh, grew stale, and I just wasn't feeling it. We, we started a, a new gym, and the new gym has a whole new promise. In fact, the, the promise, the, the wedding thing where we signed the contract and everything, it was awesome. They said, here's the deal. We bring, we bring structure and coaching and accountability. You bring consistency and we'll guarantee results. So that, that, that's the deal. So like in three months, I'll have to wear a name tag because you won't even hardly recognize me. <laughs> uh, I know. Now, now here's the deal. They're coming through on that. And I know that you shouldn't brag, but... but I don't have many opportunities, so here I go. I am exceptional at my new club. In my 6 a.m. class, I am exceptional. Is that okay to say? Yeah. I am by far the oldest guy. We wear heart monitors, and everybody's heart rate is simultaneously broadcast on a massive big screen. My heart rate is often the highest, and I produce the least reps. I am... Truly exceptional in this new relationship. Yeah. I know, I know. It could be embarrassing if I wasn't vain, but uh, if I was vain. A few years ago, early 30s, went to uh, an old school ophthalmologist to have my eyes checked. And, and after we're done, I said, I'd like to get prescriptions. Uh, I'd like to get uh, uh, contacts. And he looked at me and he said, don't you know you're way too old to be that vain? So, <laughs> yeah. Mm. So I'm too old to be vain about it. Here we go. Hey, we're going to be talking about marriage. Let's dive in. Here's the big idea today. Big idea. Marriages drift naturally. Marriages thrive, you can say it with me, intentionally. Our Bible text today was written to a sports crazy town. Crazy fans in a city called Corinth. Corinth was located on on an isthmus. And every other year hosted the Ismithian Games. You try to say that sentence five times fast and see how you get it out. Yeah. So these Ismithian Games were the successors of the Greek Olympics that had started about 700 years before. Every other spring, the athletes would come from all over the Roman Empire and they would compete in, in boxing and wrestling and foot races and throwing the javelin and the discus and... I love this one, war chariot racing. In fact, the records are very clear that women participated in the games. 
specifically a 200-meter run, and yeah, the war chariot races. Mm -hmm. Now, unlike the modern Olympics, where we have gold, silver, and bronze given for first, second, and third place, respectively, in the Isthmian Games, there was no second and third place. There was only an award given for the winner. Mm. It was all about winning. Are there any Green Bay Packer fans here? Sad, sad Sunday. Yeah. All right, Patty. We're in grief with you. Sorry. Next year. Next year. Well, those of you Packer fans, you are uh, still a fan of legendary coach Vince Lombardi, who had the same belief he would have fit in Corinth very well when he said, winning is not everything, it is the... Oh, yeah, but you didn't say it with much passion. But you were right. You had the idea down. So winners in the Isthmian Games were originally given a crown made out of pine branches. Cool, huh? Yeah. But in the first century, about the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter that we're reading from, they decided to make the crown out of wild celery. Woohoo! Yeah. And the whole idea was that it would wither quickly and it would remind the winner that life and these kinds of accomplishments are fleeting. Now, this is just kind of some fun local color. A corpse was once pronounced as the victor. Uh, his name was uh, Archian, and he was wrestling in the final match, and his opponent was, was strangling him, and Archian had enough energy to break the opponent's small toe and just hold on. And as Archian died of suffocation... The opponent tapped out, raising his index finger because of the pain, and so they gave a corpse a celery crown. Does it get better than that? Does it really get better than that? Yeah. So St. Paul writes this letter to people in a sports-crazy town with this context of experience, and he writes to them about runners who train hard and boxers who make every punch count. And that boxing image was so powerful because in the Isthmian Games, they used the Roman rules. The Roman rules had said that every boxer would take leather straps and would bind them around his knuckles and his fists, and he could put pieces of bone, metal, and even spikes in those straps. A boxing bout could go for as long as four hours until one of them raised an index finger, if he still had one left, to tap out or until someone passed out, was knocked out, or was killed in the process. A lot of blood, a lot of energy, a lot of sweat in these images that Paul speaks right into, and he addresses us in talking about a very clear point. He's encouraging Christ followers to exercise self-discipline in their life so they won't ultimately be disqualified from getting the prize. The prize is whatever God wants for you and whatever you and God are after. Compete for what's important by being intentional and exercising self-control. Let's read what he says. It's in your notes and it's on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my own body and I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In 2017, our athletic metaphors might be a marathoner or an MMA fighter. But here's the point across 2,000 years. Discipline yourself to become what God and you want in your life. Hmm. Now, this paragraph we read is brilliant. It is a transition between the big idea that precedes it, and the big idea that follows it. You can check this out later this afternoon or tomorrow in your Bibles. It forms as a conclusion to what precedes it while forming as an introduction to what follows it. The big idea that came just before was this, and I paraphrase. Paul says, I work really hard to keep my preferences under control because I really want to meet other people where they are in their life on their journey toward God. And only by self-discipline will I keep my preferences from popping up and getting in their way of coming to God. Not a bad conclusion. It also serves as an introduction of self-discipline to talk about what follows. We call it chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, where he says, Did you know that humans have a propensity toward messing up? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah. And did you know that the Old Testament gives us like 200, 2,000 years of history on people in every generation that have messed up? And do you know that when we think we're really strong, we're probably about to mess up? And did you know that God wants you to be successful and will never give you more than you can bear? And now we're going to read verse 13, which is the end of that second sausage, uh, second There was a word I was looking for. I had the first two services. It's gone. Let's read the Bible together. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So, two big ideas with a Conclusion, introduction in the middle. I want to be a kind of person that understands my own preferences, but I subjugate them so that I can join other people in their spiritual journey and I can walk with them. It takes self-discipline to do that. And I want to be the kind of person that when I encounter trials and temptations in my life has the humility to say, only with God's help can I move forward. I don't want to in arrogance say, I think I've got this one on my own. And I want to trust God because my self-discipline all by itself will never be enough. I need his help to provide my way out of this mess as well. Isn't that beautiful and powerful? So here's the big idea about life, not just marriage, but all of life. God understands you. He's faithful to you. He's with you and engaged with you. And he's here to help you be successful in winning the prize that he has set in the future for you. So this is not only about marriage. It's also for those of you who may be in other, some other status in your life right now. It's for all of us about major relationships 
in our life. And my question for you is, so what do you want for your marriage? What do you want for your important relationships? Paul tells his friends in Corinth, hey, get off your butts and go work out. Effort, energy, sweat. Why? So you can become all God intends for you to be. So you can have what God intends to give you. So you can do what God intends for you to do. And what does all this have to do with marriage? Well, I think, I think a whole lot. Relationships wilt naturally. So do wild celery crowns. Yeah. Honeymoons wilt. Life happens. I performed over 400 or officiated over 400 weddings. And uh, I have yet had a couple look at each other and say, in the middle of the vows, I really don't think this is going to work out, honey. Mm. I don't think I love you enough to make this thing happen. I don't think I bring enough hope to this relationship to actually finish this thing. But we spent a lot for the reception, so let's go party. <laughs> never happens. Never, never happens. Every wedding I've ever performed, that couple brings love and goodwill and sincerity and hope and passion and confidence. And about half marriages that start that way end in divorce. Let me tell you something. Weddings are a lot more fun than divorce. I'm just keeping it real here. So how does this thing happen? Well, we really shouldn't be surprised, should we? In fact, really smart people call it the second law of thermodynamics, which states, it is a natural tendency of any isolated system to become disorganized. I'm not that smart. I have to paraphrase it. Stuff falls apart. One of the guys who has a PhD uh, in uh, chemistry and is a really smart guy told me after the last service, what you really should have paraphrased it in this talk was, love leads to sex, which leads to children, which leads to disorder. So he had his own second law of thermodynamics thing there going on. Yeah, there we go. So in physics, it's called entropy. In physiology, it's called uh, atrophy. In my body, it's called getting slow and saggy. Yeah. In relationships, it's called going south. It naturally happens. You will not have to work on that. It will show up. I don't know how many of you have seen the Mississippi River. How many of you have actually seen it at some point? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Some of you, like me, may have seen it in both St. Paul uh, in Minneapolis and have seen it down in New Orleans. So up in Minneapolis, which is the farthest, most uh, northern point, uh, which is uh, navigable by large ships, let's imagine that you were looking there at St. Paul across the river in Minneapolis, and it would look like it's a very mellow river. But you know that those currents are very strong and treacherous, in fact. Let's imagine that your wedding is putting a canoe into the Mississippi River at Minneapolis. Now, if you didn't paddle, where would the marriage probably end up? New Orleans, which is really bad news unless you want to go to New Orleans. Let's just use the geography and say any marriage that puts in at Minneapolis and doesn't paddle against the current is going to go south. And I have performed a lot of weddings 
where a couple that sincerely loved each other and made a commitment that they intended to be a lifelong commitment to each other did not find it within themselves to keep that marriage from going south. I want to give you seven cultural forces that are currents that naturally cause marriages to go south. We're going to be quick. They're in your notes. Fill in the blanks if you want to. Here we go. Number one, we're too busy for our marriages. Man, we're in different stages of life, but if you've got kids at home, you know what this looks like. Whew. You get up, you get them out the door, you go to work, you come back, you do the thing, you shuttle here and there, you pay the bills, you have something that pops up, you go see the doctor, you get home, you land in bed, you can hardly get your clothes off, you're so tired, and then somebody says to you, you really should work on your marriage. Yeah. <laughs> busy. We get too busy for, or we, uh, we get too used to our mate. We not only take him or her for granted, but did you know that those charming differences that used to be so delightful and caused you to fall in love with that person after two years of marriage becomes horribly irritating to you? Yes. We get up with the same person every day. Whoa. And how about number three? We don't know other couples' strategies for maintaining vibrant marriages. Here's how it works. You look at them and they seem to have it together and marriage actually seems to be rowing against the current. Maybe they're even thriving. But there's nothing in our culture that suggests that the right thing to do is to sit down with them over coffee and say, what the heck have you guys figured out that might help us? We are independent Westerners and we are gonna do this on our own. Come hell or high water. And both come. Number four is differences between spouses in their work orientation toward their marriage get resolved in the direction of less work. This is how it goes. Imagine Anne here today. Platform would look particularly more attractive, wouldn't it? So Anne and Jared are into this marriage thing, and we rarely make gender generalizations here because most of those are false but I'm about to make one that has few exceptions. Ready, guys? Let's just beat up on each other for a moment. Take one of those blows Paul was talking about. So let's imagine that Anne brings to the marriage 90% commitment to make the marriage thrive. She's gonna paddle against the stream. And I'm a guy. I showed up, conquest, the deal is over. Off to bed and a life of fun. Here we go. Woo! Yeah. So I bring like a 10% commitment to work on this thing because all my work's been done. Conquest finished. Yeah. So I bring 10%. Is that coming up? Oh, excuse me. Joel's messing with me back there. These Intel people, I hate to generally just say bad things about them. So Anne brings 90%, and I bring 10%. Guess what's going to happen over time? We're going to average right in the middle, right? No way. Uh -uh. Anne's going to get stinking tired of pulling all the weight on this marriage. After a while, it's going to sound like nagging. I'm going to let her know that I'm reporting that it's nagging. And she's going to say, fooey on you, big guy, or something less kind. And Anne's going to end up with about a 10% work on the marriage as well. And we decide we've just drifted apart. Cultural current. Number five, TV, Netflix, gaming, internet, social media. I like all of those. What's wrong with those? Here's the deal, folks. Don't have an affair. And I don't mean using this as a point of communication with another human. I mean, don't let this become your new friend. Threesomes just aren't right. Know when to put this one down. I am meddling. I'm starting to sound like a cranky old man. Number six, here we go. 
Consumer mentality that believes that relationships should be therapeutic and good for us psychologically. That is a cultural current. Therapeutic. I'm going to marry you and I'm going to get better because I'm married to you. Are you kidding me? You're going to bring out the worst in me. It might take a week, it might take two years, but the honeymoon will be over. How about being psychologically good for me? Like, I'm going to marry you because you're going to make me happy? Uh Uh-uh. But the cultural current absolutely believes that if you found your soulmate, that marriage is going to make you a better person and you're going to be happier for it. Well, number seven is this. We don't keep God first. It could be number one. It could be number six. It could be number seven. It is the big story. God created marriage. Put the first couple together. Never intended for it to work without him. Marriage is with the best effort and sincerity and commitment without the power of God and his love and his forgiveness in the middle of that thing are going to find it extremely difficult to row, row, row that canoe against the cultural currents that are there. I provided for you on the backside of your outline a marital happiness scale, which you can uh, take this afternoon if you're you're married, if you want to. Uh, By the way, that's point eight uh, font. And if you can see it now, you're younger than I am. Uh, Magnifying glasses are absolutely appropriate to use when you go home. There we go, right here. And I uh, sourced that from uh, the first of several uh, resources that I placed at the top of the second side of your outline. The very first one is a book. It's called Take Back Your Marriage. Uh, I have drawn some of the content today from this talk from that. If you think that this would be helpful for you or somebody that you know, uh, that is a resource that's available for you. You'll also, as God's talking to you and leading you and you're thinking today in this talk, you might feel that it's time for you to have an intervention uh, in your relationship. And I've listed there some people and some organizations that we highly trust and appreciate and believe in that you might consider reaching out to. So I told you that I'm a part of a new gym and they have this promise that they've given and I've put it in a formula here and it says structure plus coaching plus accountability is what they bring plus my consistency equals results. Well, that's proven to be true. Trust me, there's structure. I only have to make one decision. Get there. I don't make another decision for 60 minutes. And there's coaching. That is one of the nicest words that I can use to describe the abuse that I experience with a person wearing a microphone and talking in public about my poor form and helping me do that better and noticing that I'm in the green and I'm supposed to be in the red and pointing out to the whole group that Jared doesn't seem to be sweating very much today. And there's plenty of that. And accountability, did I mention accountability? I pay a lot to be a part of this thing. And then if I miss a class I've signed up for, they automatically immediately charge my visa 12 bucks. Accountability. Where do we find that kind of structure, coaching, and accountability in our culture regarding and supporting your marriage? Nowhere. Nowhere. The cultural trends are against it. How many of you are veterans? You've been in the military service and you have gone to boot camp. I want to thank you, hands all across. Thank you for your service, and you can (laughs) applaud today. I did not have that privilege to serve my country in the way that you have, but boot camp came to mind when I read that. Was there some structure? What did you call the coach? I mean, officially, when you said, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yes, sir, is what you called the coach. A little bit of accountability there. 
By the way, did you show up every day for six, uh, eight weeks? Hmm? Were there some results? Yeah, of course. My question for you is, where do you find in, your, in this culture that kind of a context to support your marriage? And my guess is that most of us would say, nowhere. If you want those kinds of results, you are going to have to create the environment for those kinds of results. And right around you today is a bunch of people that represent several hundred folks that are a part of an evergreen community. I haven't met anybody here that's perfect, but I have met people who are very sincere in their own following Christ and their willingness to reach out and join us in the journey as well. I encourage you. If you want your marriage to be fit and firm and flexible, there's some folks that'll help you get there. So, The Apostle Paul writes to these crazy sports fans, and he says, be like me, get out of the stands, get into the arena, compete. Quote, I strike my own body. So how are you sweating to make your marriage fit and flexible and firm? Well, let me give you five ways that Ann and I have found across the seasons of our life to be helpful. And as I mentioned each briefly, maybe they'll be helpful for you in your marriage or other important relationship too. Ready to go? Number one, resist consumer marriage. We've heard it all. Most of us have said some of it. Our needs were just too different. I wasn't happy. We just grew apart. He didn't grow and I did. She made too many changes. Hmm. The relationship became stale. Consumer marriage. I get it. What would a producer marriage sound like? Well, I'm glad we're different. That's what makes our marriage interesting. I'm committed to finding ways for the two of us to grow forward together. We're both changing And I'm adapting, not always happily, but successfully to those changes. I'm going to spice this marriage up. I'm an investor in our marriage for the long haul. And I love this quote that I picked up this week. Great marriages are made when husbands and wives make a lot of everyday choices that say, I love you, rather than I love me. Yeah. Number two. You're going to love this. I sound like a grumpy old man. I know. Don't lose your marriage to your kids. Did you know that those cute little bundles are out to suck you dry? Did you know that? Did you know that? I have been told this. I have it on good authority. and I, I love little kids, but they are way ahead of you. You know that, don't you? You know parents with kids. You are nothing more than an ATM machine. They've got the card and they've got the pen. They plug it in, they punch it in, and they just want energy and money and time and attention to come out indefinitely. No wonder you're exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. Here's the deal. Remember this. No greater gift for your kids than the security of what you as the adults bring to that home. And you've got to make an investment to provide that kind of a security. And you can do that as a single mom or a dad. You can do that as a couple together. You can do that as a blended family. But the security that you give as the adult 
is the greatest gift that you can give to those kids. Remember this, your kids are far better than your marriage on demanding that their needs and wants be met. Some of you are time management folks. You know that there's four quadrants. There's things that are unimportant and not uh, urgent. Did you know that children sometimes interrupt you with things that are like that? Hmm? It sounds urgent. Then there's things that, you know, they're urgent, but they're not important. Kids are masterful at that. And then there are real needs that are both urgent and important. Your kids don't differentiate. And then there's a fourth quadrant. It's things that are important, but they're not urgent. And that's your marriage. And your marriage is never demanding. It never asks for you to invest in what's important but not urgent. And I think I've seen some families where they've allowed kids to, in the urgency of needing demand and wanting to be loving and caring and resourcing, have allowed the thing that is the most important but is not urgent to never be addressed. Number three, take some time back for your marriage. Yeah, plan some one-on-one time. You've noticed how this works. If you don't go into the calendar and make an appointment in the future, there's never time. Because if you just live into the future and you get there, guess what? It's already filled. And that limited time that you do have, make it, make it better. Be thoughtful about it. Make it an investment. And, and I encourage you to, when you are together one-on-one, in those rare moments, if you have kids, make a decision about what you're going to do with these things as well. When you're going to check them, when you're not. Make an agreement about that in advance so you actually get some one-on-one time. It might be a, it might be a call from me. And trust me, I don't want to join your date that night. I really don't, yeah. So help us both out by deciding how you're going to handle this one. There's number four, and it's invest in relationships that support your marriage. Some people have relationships with close friends and even family members that actually don't have your marriage best interests at heart. They'd really like for you to be baited into complaining about him. What did that lousy, sloppy, horrible husband of yours do now that you should tell me about so that I can salaciously enjoy what a failure he is? Family who's, I'm using the caricatures, family who says to you, I knew from the start this thing wasn't going to work out. What's going on now? Do you really think you should? What I don't encourage you to do is to kick all those friends and family members to the curb. But it's the cultural drift to have non-supportive people around us and voices. So who is it that you're going to reach out to? And part of the relationship that you've agreed to is that it's going to be a supportive relationship, which may include, above all other things, someone who loves you and knows you well enough to say when you're complaining about her, Buster, hey, let's talk about some of your frailties here. And let's figure out how you're contributing to this mess as well. We need each other in moving forward. Tell others the kind of support that you're looking for. If you're mad and you need to vent, tell them, I'm mad and I need to vent. Don't give me any advice. Yeah. And if you want advice, let them know. I'm running something by you that I'd like your advice on. Well, we're moving through quickly. I told you there were five. Number five is this. Create intentional rituals. Now, if you do something regularly, what do we call that? A habit or routine? What makes a regular experience a ritual is that it's regular and it's significant. 
So we've infused it with some extra meaning. And there's three kinds of rituals that couples can have. The connection rituals, love rituals, and special occasions. I was really young. I was a preschooler. My parents had to go out of state for an emergency with another family member. They dropped me off for a few days at my Auntie Florence's house. Now, Auntie Florence fell in love and married when she was in her 40s to who, what became now my Uncle Don. They were married for 12 years. He passed away due to cancer. They had no idea how short that their marriage would be, the only marriage in her life. And I was dropped off at Auntie Florence and Uncle Don's house. Now, I remember about their connection ritual that happened when he came home from work. And this was quite surprising for me because I was from a conservative German Mennonite family. I don't even know how Mennonites have babies. Some kind of a mysterious thing. But Annie Florence and Uncle Don were wild Baptists. So Uncle Don came home from working in the, in, the, in the lumber mill, and he was smelling like lumber. I love that smell. And he came in through the door. He burst through the door. He's this tall man. He burst through the door, and he picks up my Annie Florence and holds her horizontally. And then he spins around three times, and then he puts her feet down, and they hold and they kiss. <laughs> A long time. Now, folks, that's a connection ritual. Yeah. So how do you come home? How do you leave? Why and how do you text? Connection rituals. Love rituals. I talk more about those, but we keep things PG-13 here, so just use your own imagination on that. And how about those special occasion rituals? Well, you know, it's our anniversary, but we're really not all that into celebrating your anniversary. Well, get off a stick and start doing that. Valentine's Day, stupid Hallmark uh, holiday thing, consumeristic kind of thing. We don't need Valentine's Day. In fact, for you millennials, if you don't you know, pick up the Valentine's Day thing, Hallmark is going to go out of business. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Anna and I decided this a long time ago. We decided that any lame reason would be a good excuse for us to celebrate. So we celebrate everything celebratable, and then we make up fake stuff to celebrate that as well. Valentine's Day. Oh, the planning was superb. Valentine's evening. Three-generation household. We, uh, We got Grandma Bonnie upstairs, down the hall in her bedroom. Kids were in high school, got them upstairs, down the hall past Grandma's room and their bedrooms. Anna and I bought this house on purpose. Did I mention upstairs down the hall? Yeah. That's like one wing of the house. And then the love nest is in the other wing of the house on the first floor. Yeah. Mm. So uh, Anne fixes this amazing romantic dinner. We have clothing items and candles. Well, I can't say anything more about that. This wonderful meal comes in. We, this is a cool, a cool master suite. Double doors. The double doors are closed. They're locked. We sit down by flickering candlelight for our gourmet meal together. We forgot the dog. Scooter. This is the Cocker Spaniel you've heard about. 
peed on my boss's shoe when they came over to visit. Up on the Thanksgiving table feast, working on the turkey up there while no one was noticing. This dog, Scooter's jealous. Outside of the love nest doors, Scooter sits and howls. And howls and howls and begins scratching on the door, howling and scratching. Yeah, some romantic Valentine's evening. So here's the deal. This sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah, looks pretty good on paper. Hey, real life happens. Scooters show up from time to time. I understand. But you have told your friends that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And in life, in our culture, in this milieu of resistance to supporting your marriage, if you don't paddle hard against the current, it's probably going to go south. It's going to wilt all by itself. Life happens, no marriage is perfect, no perfect plans, but if you fail to paddle, you're definitely going to drift. Three marriage tips, Tips. let's wrap it up. Number one, be intentional and focused. If it's not in your calendar, it's not going to be real. Number two, be communal rather than solitary. Your marriage wasn't designed to work and thrive in isolation. We need God's help, absolutely, and we need community, essentially. Grow with friends. And number three, be connected to God. He designed this thing. It doesn't work well without him. Our connection with God is the same for every one of us. It's agreeing with God that we've gone our own way. It's called sin. Short word in the Bible, sin. We've gone our own way. For most of us, it's not hard to acknowledge that. And when we confess our sin, the Bible says God forgives us. And in that forgiveness, there's a fresh start. But more than that, beyond that, there's actually the power of God's Spirit that lives within us to do His work. And His work is to bring love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. What marriage wouldn't be improved by having a fresh infusion of that kind of life of God every day? So as I conclude, let's give God the final word as we read once again the paragraph we started with. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And one last bit of advice. Take care of the dog. (laughs) You might come up with your own tribute or affirmation that you make a prayer. Let me leave you with one that I've written for my relationship with Anne. I do not drift in my marriage. 
I paddle against the current. If marriage were easy, every marriage would thrive. If marriage took no effort, it could, would never grow strong. So we paddle, we will plan, we will persist, we will build a marriage with prayer and effort and sweat. We will not drift, we will not fail, we will flourish. Amen. Amen. That was good.